satellite images highlighting China's death surge, images showing an uptick in the number of vehicles parked at funeral homes. A Pfizer-made COVID-19 drug soon getting removed from China's health insurance list, Beijing complaining the drug is too expensive, while the drug maker's CEO disagrees. Bipartisan efforts working to counter the Chinese communist regime, U.S. lawmakers launching a new committee on China. Germany confirming it won't send weapons to Taiwan, one lawmaker saying it's not a question of military aid. And a Chinese warship spotted deep in the South Pacific. What does the sighting say about Beijing's latest military moves? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Don Ma in for Tiffany today. Satellite images show increased activity at funeral homes across China since December. It began after Beijing rolled back its zero COVID-19 policy and lifted lockdown orders. The satellite caught a marked uptick in the number of vehicles parked at funeral homes in Beijing and some other big cities in the last two weeks compared to one or two years ago. One funeral home in Beijing even built an extended parking lot. COVID-19 is spreading unchecked among China's 1.4 billion people. But as hospitals and funeral homes are overwhelmed and caskets are burnt outdoors in some rural areas, Chinese authorities say only about 30 people died of the virus in the last month, triggering suspicions that the Chinese Communist Party is concealing the true death toll. Funeral homes are taking measures to cope with the surging demand for services. Some are limiting the number of corpses they accept daily. Some stopped offering memorial services, instead scheduling just two minutes for relatives to take a last look at their loved ones before cremation. Some families have been forced to wait for funeral services. Outside a funeral home in Nanjing City, cars lined up last Friday. A woman there said they had been waiting for a full day. And a resident in Shandong province told us the number of corpses that are sent to one local funeral home is now 10 times higher than usual. We attended the memorial service for a colleague's mother the other day. The road to the crematory was blocked, full of cars. As the crematory staff said, usually they would get seven or eight corpses per day, a little more in winter, with eight or nine. But now there are about 90 per day. He added that it's not just elderly people with existing illnesses that are passing away. Young, otherwise healthy people are also dying. And with demand for antiviral drugs skyrocketing amid the COVID-19 outbreak in China, Beijing says it will remove a certain medication from its health insurance drug list in April. The targeted drug is called Paxlovid, an antiviral drug made by U.S. drug maker Pfizer. Chinese authorities attributed the removal to a high price for the COVID-19 drug quoted by the U.S. firm. But according to Pfizer's CEO on Monday, talks with China had broken off because Beijing demanded a lower price than Pfizer is charging for most lower middle income countries. Citing China's position as the world's second largest economy, the CEO says he doesn't think China should pay, quote, less than El Salvador. He says the company could end up selling only to the private market in China. According to reports, Paxlovid in China costs less than $300 for a five-day course. This is lower than in both the U.S. and Europe, where prices range from $500 to $700. Within China, state media is slamming the U.S. firm, accusing Pfizer of putting profit above health. 
and sparking a wave of opposition from Chinese citizens to the COVID-19 drug. On the other hand, China's wealthy plus high-level officials are reportedly stockpiling Paxlovid, giving it away to curry favor with business associates. That's while boxes of Paxlovid are changing hands for more than 20 times the drug's original price. In the new U.S. Congress, both sides of the aisle are opposing the Chinese Communist Party's ideology and use of economic coercion for global influence. Lawmakers created a bipartisan committee on China on Tuesday. NTD's Melina Weiskopf brings us more from Capitol Hill. So while the main focus of this committee will be looking at the economic relations between the U.S. and China, it will also look at human rights issues. And if you really think about it, um, the human rights issues and the economic issues between these two countries really go hand in hand. Like one member mentioned on the floor today, that's because there are some U.S. businesses who are investing in China where forced labor is occurring. So they said they will be investigating issues like this. It's important to note that this committee will only have investigative jurisdiction. They will not have a legislative jurisdiction. We caught up with some of the lawmakers who will be sitting on this committee to find out specifically what they will be looking at. One of them told me um, it's important to not only look at how the U.S. can compete with China on the domestic front, but also look at how the U.S. can use our economic influence around the world to deter the Chinese Communist Party's influence on the global scale. Why are we not partnering with Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, Indonesia, the Philippines, they are craving us. This select committee is going to focus on that. Chinese students studying at our universities and targets Americans of Chinese descent. And it is here at home where thousands of Americans are poisoned each year by fentanyl precursors manufactured in China. We need to have a united front here in Congress to counter the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, although it was bipartisan, the members who did oppose it, we spoke with one of them and he said that he's not opposed to the idea of creating a strategy in regards to China, but he says he believes that this should be done through the already formed Foreign Affairs Committee. If you don't vote for it, you sound like you're in favor of China, you're in favor of the Communist Party. Well, I'm not in favor of any communist, and I'm certainly not in favor of the Chinese communists, but I'm also in favor of fairness. And he and other lawmakers were very adamant about making a point both on the floor and afterwards when they were speaking with me about the need to make a distinction between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people. Here's a look. To the careful way that it was, uh, the words were uh, written in the resolution that it's talking about the Chinese Communist Party, not the Chinese people. Our concern is not with the Chinese people or the, or the, the rich culture of, of Chinese history. Our grievances, our concerns, relate specifically to the authoritarian regime in Beijing, which does not, we believe, does not represent the hopes, aspirations of the Chinese people. Representative Mike Gallagher would chair the new committee. In an opinion piece, he listed the major challenges the panel will look at. The first is the push to end America's economic dependencies on China. The U.S. imported a quarter of its antibiotics from China in 2021. It also relies on China for rare earth minerals, which are critical for making weapons. The committee also aims to prevent U.S. pension funds from investing in China. Controversy has come up that some of the pension funds have gone to aid China's military modernization. That's through investing in certain Chinese companies listed in the U.S. The committee would also make it a priority to aid Taiwan and to expose Beijing's lobbying efforts at U.S. government agencies. 
New agreements are happening on the international stage. Japan's prime minister is meeting with several heads of state this week, touring the capital cities of several groups of seven member nations. The Indo-Pacific region is among the key topics on the table. Zoom in. On Wednesday, Japan's Humio Kishida paid Britain a visit. At the Tower of London Fortress, he and UK leader Rishi Sunak signed a defense deal that could lead to troop deployments in each other's territory. British lawmakers said the agreement cements their commitment to the Indo-Pacific region. It will allow both militaries to plan and deliver larger and more complex military exercises and deployments. The two countries are strengthening ties amid fears of Chinese aggression, especially the looming threat of an invasion of Taiwan. On Tuesday, Kishida met with Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni. They agreed to strengthen ties in a range of areas, including the economy, trade and defense. A day before his meeting with Italy, Kishida joined French President Emmanuel Macron on a tour of the Notre Dame Cathedral's construction site. France is looking to develop its presence in the Indo-Pacific and has been keen to deepen economic ties with Japan. This joint action by France and Japan in multilateral forms is based on a solid bilateral relationship, compatible of building partnerships in the most strategic sectors, for example, in the civilian nuclear power sector, critical metals, space, defense, automotive sectors. Discussion also involved France's desire to play a bigger role in Japan's defense industry. Japan can count on our unwavering support in the face of flagrant violations of international law by Pyongyang. As part of Kishida's week-long tour, he'll next visit Canada and the U.S. for a White House meeting with President Biden on Friday. Japan will host a G7 summit in May. Germany won't supply arms to Taiwan. That's what a leading German lawmaker said during a visit to Taipei. She noted her country hasn't been asked to do so either. There is no question to send weapons to Taiwan. That is not the question. Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen met with a delegation from the German parliament Tuesday. Among them was the head of the German Parliamentary Defense Committee. She said Germany has been generous in sending weapons to Ukraine, but noted the situation is different in Taiwan. And the question is not, please, Germany, send us weapons. The questions are totally different. It's, please, look forward if you are in a trade to China. It's not a question of military uh, equipment. Most countries refrain from selling weapons to Taiwan. That's for fear of angering Beijing and prompting a trade backlash. On the other side of the strait, China renewed its threat to attack the island. A spokesman sent out a warning to foreign politicians who interact with Taipei, describing their actions as, quote, play with fire. To counter Beijing's pressure, Taiwan's military is holding a two-day joint exercise this week. China has never ruled the democratically governed island, but Beijing considers Taiwan its own territory and has vowed to bring the island under its control by force if necessary. The regime sends aircraft and warships to Taiwan on an almost daily basis. Late in December, China sent a record 71 aircraft and seven ships to Taiwan. This is the largest such exercise in 2022. A Chinese warship reaching deep into the South Pacific. What does the sighting say about Beijing's military capability and its global ambitions? NTD spoke to Captain James Fannell, former director of intelligence for the U.S. Pacific Fleet, about what's happening. 
NTD's Juliet Song has more on that. In the blue waters of the South Pacific, the French military spotted a Chinese warship. This warship appeared near French Polynesia on December 22nd last year, a group of islands in the South Pacific Ocean. A week later, the French military again snapped photos of a Chinese warship, this time near New Caledonia, a French territory in the Southwest Pacific, over 700 miles east of Australia. It's unclear if it's the same warship that emerged earlier. Captain James Fennell is the former director of intelligence and information operations for the U.S. Pacific Fleet. He said having this warship out in the South Pacific demonstrates how China is pushing its military modernization forward. That the, the PLA uh, leadership feels confident that their platforms are able to transit uh, long distances. What's unusual about this warship is that by the time it was spotted, it was over 6,000 miles away from its home base. That's beyond the range a missile destroyer of this scale could sustain without a refueling ship following behind. Their ships have the capacity uh, to transit these long distances, and I think that's something that also Americans should understand is that we hear conflicting reports from so-called experts who talk about the inferiority of PLA Navy warships and that they don't have long range, and that's actually not true. But Fennell said there's another possibility. Their uh, diplomatic efforts in establishing relations and improve relations with a number of nations in the South Pacific has enabled them to be able to transit out there without a, a, an oiler that would go with them to ensure that they always had fuel. For example, the president of the Philippines visited Chinese leader Xi Jinping last week. The two countries published a joint statement pledging to boost cooperation. So it's entirely possible that there was a port call by a Chinese warship in somewhere in the Philippines. And as I mentioned previously, it's possible also that they could have stopped uh, somewhere else along the way, Vanuatu, uh, Kiribati, Probably not Kiribati because they don't have a lot of resources there, but the Solomons is also one. Beijing has been competing for clot in the South Pacific. Several countries there have cut off diplomatic relations with Taiwan and recognized Beijing instead. The Solomon Islands is one of them. The same day the French military saw the Chinese warship near New Caledonia, a Chinese aircraft carrier group edged close to Guam. That's according to Beijing's official mouthpiece, Global Times. The island of Guam is a U.S. territory and the site of a major military base. It's home to Air Force and naval facilities. It's also a critical hub for submarine communications cables between the western U.S., Hawaii, Australia and Asia. So I think we're going, what we're seeing now is these are indicators of the PLA Navy resuming its pursuit and its strategic trend line of becoming a global naval force. He noted that having a global naval force is critical for Beijing's global economic outreach. Having a big navy uh, that can be able to ensure that their ability to transport goods and services across the, the, the oceans of the world to extend this Belt and Road Initiative that extends China's economic power to assure that they have access to these resources is the main, main goal. Fennell said the U.S. needs to recognize the threat of a rising Chinese military. 
for decades, Washington has adopted a policy of engagement. But that's a failure to understand the Chinese Communist Party and their desire to be the dominant global power. And so what the United States needs to do is first is to wake up and recognize that China's activities, while this is a single destroyer transiting, doesn't represent a significant military threat, unchecked and unprepared or unresponded to in 20 years from now or even sooner will present a great challenge to the United States' ability to ensure that our way of life and the freedom and liberty that we have can be continued. And China wants to upset that. He added, the U.S. used to be more balanced in its land and naval powers. But now, over the last 30 years with the Gulf Wars, uh, we have lost this focus on naval power. He said now America needs to return to that in order to be able to deter Beijing's further aggression and be able to fight and win a war at sea. Juliet Song, NTD News. Coming up, China claims to have achieved an important step toward quantum computing. But how far have they really gotten? It's like if you were to um, claim that you are now on the way to the moon because you are able to fire a rocket in your backyard that went over the fence and landed in your neighbor's yard, right? It's absurd. Of course, you're not going to the moon that way, but you're on the path there. The development still marks a win for Beijing. Tiffany Meyer spoke to Arthur Herman, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and director at the Quantum Alliance Initiative to learn more. Those remarks in just a minute here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Don Ma in for Tiffany today. Chinese researchers recently claimed that they have broken into encryption systems using quantum computers. What does that mean and how important is the development for the United States? Tiffany Meyer spoke to Arthur Herman, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and director at the Quantum Alliance Initiative to get his take on it. And the details that they give us in the paper are that this was done on a hybrid system. In other words, they were using quantum capability, quantum qubits, in conjunction with classical computing technology, what we call a hybrid system. Now, what that means is that, uh, that let's back up for a second. <laughs> Decrypting and factorizing all those large numbers that will open up, you know, the, open up the box, and suddenly no secrets anymore. Um, you know, all the all the encryption systems that we have become decrypted. This requires that factorization is something that classical computing, digitally based systems can't do. Give a million years, still can't do it. But because of the unique qualities of a quantum based system, theoretically, you should be able to do it. And you will be able to do it eventually. So what's happened is the Chinese are showing you don't have to wait to an all qubit, an all quantum-based system. You can do a blend. You can achieve this through a blend of classical computing power plus the processing power that comes with qubits, and you can move in the same direction towards a code-breaking, a code-breaking system. So what that means is, Tiffany, what this means is, is that getting to that day, the the what the day when you have a quantum computer that can really do 
far-reaching, catastrophic damage to our financial system, to our power grid, to our government agencies, including our military, that that day is not entirely dependent on how quickly or how quickly we move towards getting a, a large-scale quantum computer, you might be able to get there, you might be able to get there using a hybrid system. And I think the ultimate result, the final analysis, what this journal article should do is not, not cause panic, not to get us thinking the Chinese have a quantum computer now that can you know, rip apart our financial markets and our banking system and, uh, and, 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 deep in, and dip into our government secrets. But it should make us uncomfortable because it means that the, this capability is coming, coming along and we're moving step by step in that direction. You want a comparison? It's like if you were to um, claim that you are now on the way to the moon because you are able to fire a rocket in your backyard that went over the fence and landed in your neighbor's yard, right? It's absurd. Of course, you're not going to the moon that way, but you're on the path there. But is it something that we have to worry about right now? No. Is there a lot of propaganda value for China in making such an announcement? Absolutely because everybody is chasing after the elusive large-scale quantum computer, the one that can really, in reality, break down all of those public encryption systems and expose all of the secrets, all the data, all the information that our biggest institutions, including governments, run on uh, and depend upon, and doing it in ways that actually we probably would never know because it, it, there's no way to, they don't, the, the break-in doesn't leave any sort of trace. There's no footprints that are left behind as a result of the break. No broken glass, you might say, from, from, from burglarizing the system. And that's the whole point. If the Chinese really did have an algorithm that could really do all of those amazing and dangerous and terrifying things, <laughs> they wouldn't advertise it. They'd just use it. When we're talking about qubits and bits and these supercomputers and quantum computers, how do they compare to our regular little computers? How much power, more powerful are these so that we have an idea? Well, they could be extremely powerful, even more so than we can possibly imagine. Um, I mean, if you have a quantum compu computer with, let's say, just, just 300 qubits, in other words, 300 processing bits, that are connected via quantum entanglement, quantum mechanics, instead of the connection, the, the bits that we use in digital computers, you have the processing power that's equal to um, a computer that has that, that involves every atom in the known universe. I mean, that's how powerful these things are. The power grows exponentially as you grow as you grow out the number of qubits. So from a theoretical standpoint, we're talking about a major revolution in how we process information, how we do calculations. Insoluble mathematical problems suddenly become soluble. Some of those seemingly insoluble mathematical problems are the ones that underlie our public encryption systems that we all depend upon to keep data and networks safe and secure. So that's the danger on the one hand, Quantum computers, because of their unique capabilities, relying on this ability of the qubits to, to do things that, did, that regular digital bits can't even imagine doing. 
huge breakthroughs, enormous benefits for humankind that flow from it, but also enormous dangers that come if these are misused or if they're used by malicious hands. And that's what we have to worry about, especially when we get stories like this or articles like this uh, from, uh, uh, from Chinese scientific journals. We always know that in the background, lurking in the background, there are Chinese military, Chinese intelligence services, and the full power and influence of the Chinese Communist Party. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Don Ma. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.